Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our hearts. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it One more time here. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our hearts. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it. Our teaching text today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and it's on page 905, if you have a blue Bible, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our You're the king and you're the center of love. Amen. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, Lori Gordon, for reading our text this morning. And hello to all of you who are online watching. Good to see you and be with you this morning. Hello to all of you in the shed, too. Good morning. My name is Ashley. Um, so here we have six words. If that is all someone had to describe you, what would they say? What would they say about you in your life? Well, I tried this with a few familiar faces. I did some crowdsourcing last night. If you were pittering around on the Instagram, you saw me do this, okay? So here are some familiar faces. Let's start with this one. Michael Jordan, if you had six words to describe Michael Jordan's life, what would you say? People online went nuts. I, let me tell you, goat, this is not bad. this is greatest of all time. And then people again said, greatest of all time, goat, greatest of all time. Over and over and over again, people said legend, he's a legend, he's so talented. He's my childhood icon. He's unbeatable. And on and on and on people went about Michael Jordan, okay? So I said, fine, let's try another one. What about this lady? Elizabeth, the queen. If you had six words to describe the queen, what would you say? Someone said power, faithful. Someone else said quiet but tough as nails. I tend to agree. 
classy. Um, parenthetically, has anyone seen her wear the same thing twice? I haven't. She's always wearing something new, a new hat, new feather. Uh, and then finally, and most importantly, sassy with some cute pups, okay? That's what someone mentioned about the queen, okay? And then, and then I threw up Oprah. I threw up this lady. Everybody! This is, this is Oprah, right? Just once I wanted to be on her show, but my, I was like seven when she was in her prime, maybe, so I never made it. But someone appropriately said, rich. Oprah ain't broke, okay? We know that. All right, someone else said Queen of America, and I had to do a double take. I was like, are we talking about Elizabeth? No. Someone said Queen of America that Oprah is, okay? Someone else said Hero, Majestic. And then finally a few people said, you get a car. You would come to church, right, if Troy I stood up here and, and promised cars to everybody just out in the back, South Lot, yeah. So there were a couple other people I threw up there, Jeff Bezos and a couple other folks, but um, this was just a sampling of what people had to say about these well-known faces and well-known names. And recently, Del and my husband, uh, who's a musician, as you know, we love music in our house, so we do things other than just sing. He does, he does things other than just play in our house. We also like to watch documentaries and just talk about music and debate, like who's the greatest and all this. So we were watching a documentary about this lady. Tina Turner. And after this documentary uh, went off, I kind of went through, through this, down this rabbit trail and I listened to a podcast about her life. And for those of you who aren't familiar with her life, she had a pretty rough life in some parts. She's this famous artist, iconic singer, saying, what's love got to do? Come on, got to do with it. Clap your hands. Huh. What's love but a second? Yes, you come up here and do that. Come on, no, just, no, 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 yeah. Stay right there. So that's Tina. But as she was growing up, her, that was not her original name. Did everyone know that? That was not her original name. Her original name, her first name, was Anna Mae Bullock. And her ex-husband, Ike Turner, gave her this stage name, Tina Turner, to help bolster her career. And there's this scene in this movie that's uh, depicted after her life called What's Love Got to Do With It? And there's this iconic courtroom scene where Tina is before the judge and she and Ike are getting a divorce. There was a lot of harm in their relationship. And they're getting this divorce and, and Tina's before the judge and the judge says to her, you are going to walk out with absolutely nothing. And here's what the character playing Tina famously replies accept my name. I'll give up all that other stuff, but only if I get to keep my name. I worked too hard for it, Your Honor. See, something that had been trademarked had become essential to Tina's success to her career, to her fame. And she said, you can have everything else. You can take everything else that I have, but I want my name. Think about your name. Some of us were named after family members or friends. 
Some of us were given names that mean something important to the person that named us. Perhaps you recall a silly or hurtful nickname that you were given growing up and it's been everything you could do to try and get rid of it, to have it sloughed off of you. And here's why, church. Because names are not neutral. They're powerful. They hold weight. They're meaningful. And sometimes we throw them around, hurting other people with names. Sometimes names have been used toward us. Names hold weight in our culture, in our society. We sit up differently if we hear a certain name is approaching, don't we? But here, as part of the Apostles' Creed, at this point in our series, we encounter a name. So as we've done the past couple of weeks, let's read up until where we are right now. The words will be on the screen. We'll go from the very beginning. Would you join me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. There it is. There's that name. And following that name are six words that hold great power. Church, of all the possible questions we could consider, out of all the directions we could go today, there was one question that was bouncing around in my spirit and I couldn't shake it and what was read in our text this morning. Thanks again, Lori. And it was the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Some say this, some say this, some say you're this, right? But I can imagine he looks at them and he asks, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, not them, you. What reaction and response does that name spark in us? Here, Marcel, I have a concern and I have a hope. Here's my concern. My concern is that we have forgotten how to confess Jesus. I'm fairly confident we can talk about him. We can reference parables, we can talk about his life, we can point to scriptures. Some of us have really sound theology and Christology. We can tell you about the life of Jesus, but my concern isn't that we can't talk about him, is that we have collectively forgotten how to confess that name. But when it comes to our own personal encounters, here's the difference between talking about and then confessing Jesus. Our confession originates from our personal encounters, what we've heard with our ears, what we experienced with our lives, what we've spoken from our lips, what we've received from other people. Confession isn't just a regurgitation of what we know. It's a profession. It's a naming of what we know to be true because it's been our lived experience in encounter with someone. Do we really know how to confess Jesus? But here's my hope. 
My hope is that in the magnitude, the magnitude and glory of Jesus' name might be reaffirmed in its rightful place in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls today. That it might take the appropriate place on our lips. That we might be reawakened to its power and holiness and would align our lives to the truth of the power that's in the name of Jesus Christ. Who do you say Jesus is? This section of the creed does two things in response to this question. One, it calls us to recognize the weight of Jesus' name. And two, it calls us to consider a significant worshipful confession. A quick note about the structure of the creed here. This officially begins the second section of the creed, and it's the longest one, okay? It's super long. When we start talking about Jesus, the creed goes into the most detail. And here's a caveat. It's not because the creed is playing this Trinitarian game, dictating something about our our theology of the Trinity. It's not saying, here's a lopsided idea of Jesus' place in the Godhead. But I tend to agree with what J.I. Packer says. This is really helpful. This section is really the touchstone of Christianity. So buckle up, because from here to August 1st, y'all, we will be talking about Jesus. And I hope that's really good news. Okay? So first, let's talk about the weight of Jesus' name. Here's what I find interesting. The creed does not just say, and Jesus, his only son. Why does the creed include Christ here? Aren't the names interchangeable, you might ask? I can tell you one thing, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He was not born to Mrs. Mary Christ. It's not like saying Brad and Brad Gordon. It's not Jesus or Jesus Christ. It's not the same thing. It's not apples to apples, okay? Jesus's name isn't just a name because Jesus Christ isn't just a name. It's a title. It's a title. Here is where the road forks for anyone who only thinks of Jesus as a significant historical figure. Someone could very well say and acknowledge that Jesus walked the earth. Some might even go the next step and say, yeah, Jesus walked the earth and I believe his teachings, his kindness, his care for humanity was significant. He had some really good things to say about how to live a whole life. People could agree with those statements, but that's it. Because by naming Jesus Christ, Acknowledging Jesus as only an important historical figure is no longer an option. Because the title Christ was reserved for the anointed one. If you go back to the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil in the Old Testament. You can imagine David being God's anointed one, right? All of these people in history in the Old Testament were anointed, but Christ was to come as the anointed one. Christ was to be the Messiah. It's the Hebrew version, right? Saying, 
I'm coming, God was sending the one anointed one as a fulfillment of all the other roles the prophets, priests, and kings were playing in the Old Testament. There would be one to fulfill that role for all of history and in all of creation. And Jesus Christ was named as the one. He was the one that was going to save. He was Israel's God, the God of Abraham, who made this promise to God's people. And Jesus was coming as the fulfillment of all that was promised them. So Jesus wasn't just a historical figure to be respected. Jesus was the anointed one who would come to save us. Christ is his title, the encompassment of everything that God promised to his people that will still come to fulfillment. So part of the weight of his name, church, isn't just his title, but here in this little middle section of this phrase, it's also his sonship. I love what Michael F. Byrd says. Jesus' sonship does not have a historical beginning because he is the eternal son. Jesus does not become the son at his birth, baptism, or at the resurrection, whereas a Roman general could be appointed as a son of God through adoption by the divine emperor and be made his heir. Jesus was the son of God by virtue of his divine nature. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Amen. Jesus is more than just a historical figure with an important title. Begotten of God. The creed calls us to confess that Jesus, too, is God. See, there was a heresy in the fourth century by this guy named Arius who said that there was kind of this hierarchical order that Jesus was maybe just a little bit below God, but higher than the angels. And the church rocked with this for about 50 years, saying, okay, Jesus is just here, but just here, like he's kind of like tried to put him in the middle somewhere. But here's the problem. If you worship anything other than God, what are you doing? That's idolatry. So the church essentially was saying, like, this doesn't make sense. If Jesus isn't God, then what we're doing here is pointless and it's idol worship. So by saying that Jesus doesn't have just this important title, but that his sonship uh, affirms and completely um, makes him one with God, there's something that was unlocked for the church and believers there. They had to disrupt this heresy that said that he was kind of somewhere parsed in the middle. Jesus' sonship, and I love what Troy said week one, tells us something about the relationship with God the Father and gives us complete peace. And for those of you who are um, showing up this Father's Day and you don't have complete peace, I hope that the prayers that Kyle led us through help bring you to a place of understanding the Father's love. And I think Jesus' relationship with the Father gives us so much to be at peace about, even when what we had on earth was missing, right? But you take Jesus' title and his sonship. We understand him as the anointed one, and we grasp his divinity. 
Church, we get more than just an impressive contender for Time Magazine's most influential person. We get the most worthy name there ever was, that there is, or that there ever will be in all of history. I love that at Jesus' baptism, he came up from the waters and before he did one single thing, the voice of the Father affirmed, this is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. Jesus' title and deity aren't just tolerated by God. Everything that Jesus would do from that point forward was affirmed and wrapped in the love of the Father for his Son. So we can trust this name. is isn't just a good name, it's a loving one too. Jesus was affirmed by his Father and what confidence we have. I have to pause here because um, I know not everyone's a parent. And I'm not a father, but I am a mother. And when I looked at this passage about Jesus' baptism, and when I read this phrase over and over again in preparation for this morning, I had to think about my one son, my boy, my five-year-old, Miles. And here's what captured my heart afresh in considering this middle part of this phrase that we're in this morning. And we'll talk about more about Jesus in the coming weeks, but this one phrase, this was God's only son. In John 3.16, I read this a million times, but I imagine Jesus, this name, this title, the fact that he's in this perfect loving relationship with his father and how much um, they must have enjoyed that communion, right? But then I read again John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. There's something to be said not just about God's love for the Father, or God's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, but about God's love for us, that he would take the Son with whom he was so well pleased and give him to us. Because something was missing. Something had gone horribly wrong. Sin had wreaked havoc. And God said, I have a solution. I'm going to give my Son to you. What a beautiful reminder of the significance, of the weight of this name and what was given to us. Church, I'll pause here and just ask again, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? It's fine to think of Jesus as your forever friend. Back in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, I remember there was a wave of years where it was common to hear people refer to Jesus as their homeboy. Okay? Anyone? Am I the only one? You, you've heard this. Jesus is my homeboy. Okay? But here's what I hope. May the name of Jesus not grow so familiar that we mistreat it 
inadvertently forgetting his title and his holiness. There is weight to the name of Jesus. So here we understand in this short little phrase, those few words, the weight of Jesus' name. But there's also these last two words at the end that call us to something very significant in a posture of worship with a significant confession at the end. J.A. Packer once again stated, it Jesus is God the Son, our co-creator, and is also Christ, the anointed Savior King now risen from death and reigning in the place of authority and power, then he has a right to rule us. And we have no right to resist his claim. Can I tell you what kind of threw the book down when I read that phrase? Because at first read, there was something in me, seriously, there was a visceral reaction. I was like, I don't like this. This sounds, I mean, can I, you know, trying to figure out, that's scriptural. Yeah, that's scriptural. I think it's scriptural. This, this, this part right here might sound restrictive and controlling. But let me remind us, church, Jesus is a perfect ruler who does not rule unjustly. He is not like the other rulers and authorities of the earth in our day where we can poke holes and call them to accountability. Jesus needs no accountability. He's perfect. So understanding us as coming under the lordship and the rule of Jesus should be one of the greatest joys we experience in our discipleship with Christ. Because he does not rule unjustly. And here's the second thing I realized. If Jesus doesn't have a right to rule us, something or someone else does. Even if that someone is is you, is me. So here's a little bit of a, a confession. Yesterday, you know, it's our family's day off where we're supposed to have the most fun ever on Saturdays. Okay, does this ever really happen? No. It turns out to be the most chaotic day of the week, even though we planned for it not to be. So here I am, just picture me sitting in the middle of my kitchen on the floor with a half-naked toddler who I'm trying to potty train. I bought this girl the cutest little Minnie Mouse toddler potty. But she's, she's afraid of the seat. She doesn't want the seat. She just wants the button that makes the flushing sound. I'm like, that's not how it works. You got to put something in the potty to be able to earn the flush, okay? So I'm on the floor, okay? Uh, Del, I don't know where Delwyn is. I think Delwyn's coming out of, we had some cross communication. I was grumpy. So I'm trying to uh, potty train a toddler. There's missing communication. And then my son that I've already, who was aforementioned, he came running in screaming, mommy, I don't want to be five anymore. I want to be a baby. And I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. There's, I don't know what, what. So then he goes off because he's crying because I can't make him fit in my tummy anymore. And from the other room, I just hear these three words. He screams, I give up. I give up. 
He was just done. He was done trying to rationalize being something he could never be again. And in that moment, I'm like, I have a little trickle of sweat running down my brow. I'm frustrated. I'm hot. And I say, you know what? I give up too. I give up too. I give up. And surprisingly, here's the secret, church, surprisingly, there was something about that moment and those words and this realization of the weight of Jesus' name and what that compels me and how that compels me to respond in worship where I actually thought that is the best posture for me to be in, to be in a posture of, I give up. Jesus, you can have it. You're the only one that can fix it. In my brokenness, you are the answer. I have nowhere else to turn. For you have the words of life. Church, some of us walked in to these doors with a really heavy I give up in our spirit. Because we're tired. We're tired of grieving. We're apathetic. We're waiting on someone to prove something to us. Maybe the best place for you to be in that chair that you're sitting in or watching online is in a place of holy surrender, saying, I give up, Jesus. You can take your rightful place once again. Because everything else I've tried doesn't cut the mustard. Here's what's difficult in our Western context. We may never be physically confronted with the ramifications of the confessions of Jesus as Lord. We may never be called to a martyrdom that was true of the early saints. But for second century Christians, saying that Jesus was Lord wasn't just a confession. It was oftentimes the difference between life and death. See, Emperor Domitian, late in the second century, claimed the title Lord for himself. No one could challenge or rival his authority because both Christians and Jews refused to abide by his claim, insisting God was the true Lord. They weren't just being contrarian. They were being subversive. Christians were tortured and killed because they wouldn't burn incense to the emperor and give the emperor the name that they knew was reserved only for God. Maybe that will never have to be us. Maybe we'll never have to choose whether to proclaim the emperor Caesar as Lord or Jesus, but I have a suspicion there are a million other little Caesars, not pizza, a million other little emperors running around claiming to have lordship in our lives today, trying to rival the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's another quote by Bird. He says, to confess that Jesus is Lord 
is deeply offensive and disturbing to postmodern sensibilities. Jesus is not a leader who has his authority curtailed by politicians or sociologists telling him which areas of life he's allowed to give people advice on. Jesus is not interested in trying to capture a big chunk of the religious market. To the contrary, he continues, he's in the business of completely monopolizing it with the glory, justice, and the power of heaven. And he has every right to do so. After all, as the firstborn of all creation, the cosmos is his work and inheritance. Who do we say he is? If I would prepare and present myself as my best self before the Queen of England, if I would clap my hands hard and loud for you too, or Creed, some of us, <laughs> if I would scream at the top of my lungs to welcome Oprah or Ellen on their TV set, if I would give a, a, a version of the fullness of myself to lesser names, then why would I not give Jesus Christ the weight due his name and give up all that I have all the way up to my life with joy? Some of our allegiances, I fear, have been misplaced. Some of our praise has been misapplied. Some of our worship has gone to the wayside and it's been off-centered, off-kiltered a bit. But friends, I'm so glad that the grace of God makes it possible for us to come running back and for us to reclaim the name of Jesus in its rightful place. That's the beauty of grace. It's not too late to bring this back into realignment. One last point. This isn't just about our personal confession. The creed doesn't say, my Lord. It says, our Lord. Personal confession is important. That question still stands. Who do you say that he is, but there's something beautiful that our, our personal confession lends to a corporate one. That when each one of us rightfully places Jesus' names, gives it the weight that it's due, and worships him in rightful alignment as our Lord above all other lowercase l lords, the church comes alive in a way that is so clear to the world who Jesus is. What a credible witness. It was interesting, yesterday we celebrated Juneteenth. And this is a holiday that I was, you know, I grew up celebrating because we lived in Texas and the significance of Juneteenth was that in 1865 on June 19th, the Emancipation Proclamation that had been written and put into practice two and a half years earlier finally made it to the slaves in Texas. So, so freedom was way, way, way delayed. And I grew up celebrating this holiday. Right? I have pictures of my grandfather throwing a party 
at the filling station with old cars in front, eating good food. This was really significant for my family and others in the South. But I read this, this uh, piece in a book that dates all the way back to the fourth century. It says this, the problem with slavery was that it creates a false lordship. By making one person the master of another, human beings claim an authority that belongs only to God. As Gregory of Nyssa says to the slave owner, you have forgotten the limits of your authority. The world has only one Lord, and this Lord does not enslave but calls to freedom. May this be just a microcosm of the greater work of the confession of the church of Jesus as Lord, that the church is empowered to set people free in the name of Jesus because Jesus' name isn't just valuable. It's the most valuable. I pray that we could say with the same fervor that Tina Turner said in that courtroom, you can take all the other stuff. You can take the arguments. You can take the opinions. You can take my home. You can take my job. You can take this relationship. You can take everything I have, but give me the name of Jesus, and I live. My prayer is that that is our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. A confession that collectively, church, we raise up to proclaim as light and good news to the world. That is the beauty of understanding the weight of this name and the worship that it's due. So before we recite those three lines again, perhaps with a new vantage point, a deepened or renewed understanding of this name, I want to give us just a few seconds to think when it comes to the weight of Jesus' name or the worship of that name, the confession. When someone might ask you, who do you say that he is? Where does the spirit intersect your life and your being this morning? Perhaps you make a personal commitment only available by the power and the grace of God to say, Lord, may I never misuse your name again. Maybe that's the work this morning, but maybe it's in the worship of it. Maybe you examine your life and you agree, yes, there have been other little emperors to whom I've been calling Lord. Other opinions, other names, other ideas, ways of living. Maybe you yourself have made yourself your own Lord. Might you say, no, I'm turning. This is literally the definition of repentance. I'm turning Jesus Christ to you to proclaim you as my Lord once again. So take a moment, just think, pray. Invite the Spirit to search you. Maybe even during 
our final set. If there's still some time that you need, remain seated and spend that time with God in worship and prayer. Let's say this again together, shall we? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Amen.